Joshua chapter 2. Before we look at Joshua, let me read a verse from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Last week, we began a short summer series on faith and the times that I'll be with you during Todd's absence this summer. And I thought it would be good for us on several of these Sundays to lift one of these folks out of Hebrews 11 and examine why they were included. This morning, we want to look at the life of Rahab. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Drop down to verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all of the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Begin our time of study with a word of prayer. Father, I am grateful for your grace. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your, I thank you for your word. I pray this morning as we study the life and legacy of a lady whose name is Rahab, we would be struck by the way that you worked in her life and her courage and what she risked in a difficult situation. Instruct us by your word and through your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are certain occupations that we associate with certain biblical characters. To say a particular name conjures up an occupation. Abraham was a herdsman. David was a shepherd. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Isaiah was a prophet. Peter was a fisherman. Herod was a king. Esther was a queen. Matthew was a tax collector. Caiaphas was a high priest. Paul was a tent maker. Lydia, Lydia was a seller of purple. Perhaps the strangest of all, Rahab. Mention her name and immediately one occupation and only one occupation comes to mind. She was a harlot, a lady of the evening. The Bible makes no bones about Rahab's occupation and does not try to cover it up. Rahab is mentioned eight times in Scripture. I've listed those for you in your bulletin. On five of those occurrences, her name is found with a specific noun describing her occupation. Down through the centuries, teachers and commentators and preachers have done their best to soften that up to make it go away, to call her a, a, just an innkeeper, 
Neither the Hebrew or Greek word will allow for that. And that's one of the things I appreciate about the scriptures. It's real. (laughs) By that, I mean that if you read ancient literature outside of scripture, all too often they will tell you about the great victories won, the awesome kings, and all of the good folks. The Bible doesn't do that. It deals with real-life people in real-life situations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you will. The Bible tells it like it is. It portrays people, warts and all. That's certainly the case with Rahab, a lady of the evening. She is described as a woman with a bad reputation, yet she makes it into that great hall of fame, that great hall of faith because of her courage and her faith, I believe. Think of that list of folks in Hebrews 11. There's Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, (laughs) followed by Samuel, David, Judges, and other folks not named. It's amazing to think about it. In, In one fell swoop, God reaches down and changes all of our categories. Rahab stands as an example of a person who, uh, of faith who caused her to stand in a risky situation, in a difficult situation. This uh, passage, Joshua chapter 2, is broken into basically three paragraphs. In verses 1 through 7, we see Rahab protecting. Verses 8 through 14, we see her professing her faith, and then... 15 to the end of the chapter, she's planning. She's working things out. When we come to Joshua 2, we stand with Israel on the brink of history. They are about to enter Canaan, the promised land. Oh, they've been there before. Remember in Numbers 13 and 14, Moses brought them up to the brink of the promised land. And and because there was a Lack of trust in God, they sent in 12 spies. And those 12 spies, as you recall, came back with a report. Two of them said, we can do it. We can trust God. We can take the land. Ten said, no. Big guys in there. We can't do it. They followed the ten. And because of that, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. Now that generation has died off. And the mantle of leadership has changed. Joshua is now in charge. He brings Israel again back to the brink of the promised land. He decides to send in spies. Not because he doesn't trust God. He wants to get the lay of the land. This is a reconnaissance mission. He wants to check their defenses. He wants to see what the morale is like. Get some information. So the text says that he sent them in secretly. Uh, Two reasons for that, I think. First of all, you don't want your spies getting caught in enemy territory. That would be not good. But also, you remember the last time that Israel knew that the spies were sent out? Things didn't turn out so well. (laughs) So Joshua said, let's send them in secretly. And he sent them into Jericho. Now, Jericho is not a big city, but it's on the eastern front of this uh, land, and it is well fortified. It has an army. They need to get the lay of the land. 
that word king that describes the guy in charge in uh, verse 2. And we might call him a kinglet. He really wasn't a king. He was like a mayor of a city. He just was in charge of the administration of that locale. So anyway, we have the spies going in, and they lodge in the house of Rahab. And that just raised some eyebrows, some questions. I mean, why in the world would they go there? What would be the possible advantage uh, of going there? I think it's probably easy to see. There are a number of advantages. Let me just lay them out for you. Uh, first of all, Rahab's house was built on the wall, the text tells us. Archaeologists have told us that uh, Jericho was, was, uh, had two walls that went around the city that were separated by 12 feet, huge walls. And the uh, planks or timbers were laid on those walls between the two walls, and there were homes built on the walls. And that's where Rahab lived. The spies could get a good look at what was going on in the city, and they could get a good lay of the land outside of the walls as well. Second, to be honest with you, this would have been a good place to get information. I mean, there were a lot of people who came and went, soldiers and salesmen and merchants, and, and it would be a good place to get some information. But third, and I think most importantly, this is a providential meeting. Those spies, I think led by God, went to Rahab's house because there was a person there who would be of great help to them, would help them identify what was going on in the city and send them on their way. Now, the spies come, they go to Rahab's house, and apparently the king has his operatives out as well. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, verse 2, the men of the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Uh, the question comes up, and it's interesting, as you go through this text, there's a whole lot of questions that come up. How in the world did they know they were from, from Israel, across the pond, across the river? Well, it may have been their dress, it may have been their speech, we, we just don't know. But in any case, the king knows that Israel is over there, and they are frightened, as we've seen in the text. And now there are two guys in his city. So he sends folks to scope out the situation and find out what's going on. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Let me just stop just a moment here. Uh, Rahab has got these two guys who have come. She knows where they've come from, apparently, and she decides to take action. But for just a moment, let's consider who she is and the situation that she is in. She is a woman uh, in a world that's dominated by men, uh, where women were devalued and taken for granted. She has a family because she asked to protect them, we'll see later. But in all reality, she's alone. Secondly, she's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. She's a foreigner raised in a pagan religion. Canaanites were hated by the people that surround them, historians tell us. In fact, one of their close neighbors described the Canaanites as wicked and a degenerate culture of a debased religion. That's something coming from another pagan society. And then if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that God had declared that the land of Canaan would be destroyed when Israel came into the land to claim God's promise. 
Now, thirdly, think about this woman who is part of the oldest profession on earth, living in the fringes of society on the edge of her culture. The respectable folks were told lived inside the city, city center. Those who were less respectable, those who were poor, lived outside the city or on the city wall. Rahab, <laughs> an unlikely subject for God to use. But God sent the spies there because he knew something that they did not. Well, as I mentioned, Rahab heard that uh, the spies had been picked out, and she decides to take action. Look at verse 5. It came about when it was time to shut the gate uh, at, at dark. The men went out. I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which had laid in, uh, in order on the roof. Apparently, to supplement her income, the family was in the linen business uh, of harvesting stalks and, and drying them and then putting them up on the roof to dry and put together, and then it would become linen cloth. The problem is, the elephant in the room is, she lied. She lied. Now, if you think that commentators and teachers go crazy over the fact that she was a harlot, you ought to see them dance around this one. This is a big deal. I mean, she just flat out lied. So let me say this before I say that. Lying is wrong. Lying is sin. Throughout scriptures, it is condemned. In the law, it's condemned. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is condemned. The writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 12, 22 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. What do we do with Rahab's lie? Let me just offer some suggestions. First, it's important to remember that in the Bible, it, it's often, it often records what God does not necessarily approve of. It just tells the story. The flip side, divine approval in one area does not mean that he approves of all of a person's life choices. We saw that last week in, in Hebrews 11. That long list of people are examples of people who are, uh, are applauded for their faith. <laughs> but they're flawed people. They fail in other areas, but yet they're commended for their faith. Then look at it from Rahab's perspective. She's a Canaanite, a, a lady of the, of the evening. She lived in a Canaanite culture, a depraved culture that thought nothing of lying and stealing and all sorts of, of issues. One historian said they will lie at the blink of an eye. She had no exposure to moral teaching at this point. She had no spiritual instruction, no law, no scriptures. For all of us who have come to faith in Jesus, in today's world there are challenges of behavior. And sometimes those changes in behavior come slowly. 
We sing that great hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Authored by John Newton, who was a slave trader. John Newton came to faith, and it was almost a year before he realized, this is not something I ought to be doing. And he gave up that evil business. She is commended. I read from Hebrews 11.31. James says, And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Later in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, the author says this, And the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom she sent. She is saved. She is delivered because she believed God and she acted on that belief. Could God have done it without her telling a lie? Of course he could. But she's a Canaanite woman with no instruction, no moral teaching. And although I believe that divine judgment, in God's judgment, she sinned, by God's grace she was saved on the basis of her faith and was forgiven. Already an outcast, already in the fringe of society, she becomes a traitor. She lines up with God in opposition to the king of Jericho. She stepped into unknown territory, taking a risk, trusting that God would deliver her and her family. And next we have this remarkable, this amazing conversation where Rahab professes her faith. Let me just read it and then make a few observations. Now, before they lay down, well, I read it once, I'm going to read it again. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that you, the Lord, uh, he has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and when you, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in, heavens, in the heavens above and on the earth below. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord. Swear to me by the Lord. Did you, did you hear what she said? All of the things that she knew. And by, that word, by the way, that word know is not a word of intellectual knowledge so much as it is a word of, of actual experience, uh, of um, uh, understanding deep within. How did she know these things? <laughs> there was no Fox News, no CNN, no Internet, no Facebook, no Twitter. The only thing we can figure out is that she heard by those folks who came through her home what God had done. And notice the words that she used. That the Lord, stop there. Did you notice she uses the term Lord four times? That, that is the word that uh, 
talks about God's personal and covenantal name, Yahweh. Remember in Exodus when, uh, when God says to Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to get, let the people go. And, and Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God in that burning bush said, tell him that I am has sent you. And that name, I am, is the term uh, Yahweh. And it has become God's personal and covenantal name. He understands who God is. That the Lord has given, not will give, is about to give, has given you the land. It's, not, it, it's ironic to me as I study the scriptures and study this Old Testament passage that in many ways Rahab had more faith than some of those in Israel. Notice that she points out that uh, the inhabitants have melted away. That means they're pretty demoralized. And she says that three times. Not only does Rahab know these things, she has acted on them, but the king and the soldiers and everyone in, in Jericho knows that the Israeli army is over there. And they know the same things that she knows. And they know that Israel is coming. They're scared spitless. That's not in the text, but that's what she said. And what had she heard? She had heard how God had delivered Israel out of Egypt by parting the Red Sea, which had happened 40 years earlier. And then another event, the defeat of these two kings of the Amorites, which was much closer historically. She picks out two events in the history of Israel says, this demonstrates the power of God, and you are Lord. In a polytheistic society, she understands that the God of Israel is God alone. Power displayed. And then she goes on in verse 11. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Keep, underline it, whatever. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. What a great theological statement. Your God is not only transcendent, he's above all. He is imminent. He is among all. He's the God of heavens. He's the God that works in the lives of people. This out of, the, out of Rahab. A Canaanite. What a great theological statement. What an affirmation of monotheism, monotheism by this polytheist. Verse 12, Now therefore please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father, my mother, and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life or yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, don't, don't tell anybody, it shall come to be when, there it is again, when, not if, 
But when? They're confident as well. The Lord gives us a land that we will deal kindly and faithfully or truthfully or truly with you. What a statement of faith. Well, then she does a little planning, beginning in verse 15. Rahab's window, as I mentioned, was on the wall and faced out over the wall. Then she let them down by the rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was um, living on the wall. She said to them, go. It's a command. What I find interesting, she's commanding them. She's giving them instruction, telling them how to get away. Go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you. Hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return, and afterward you may go on your way. She tells them to go out over the wall, not go back uh, towards uh, the east, back towards Israel. Go west into the hill country where you can hide. Hang out there three days when the search is over, then go back to your people. Then the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you which you have made a swear. And then they give three conditions. We're going to protect you. We're going to save you. But these are three things that you must do to make this happen. First is that she had to make her home known. Unless we come to the land, into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. First thing that she had to do is tie a cord of red or scarlet, rope or cord, out of her window, on the wall, so that the armies came, they'd know it was her house, they could save her. It's interesting, <laughs> that word for rope, tikva, it's mentioned twice. In this text, in verse 18 and verse 21, what's interesting, it's, it's like many words in languages, not only foreign languages than ours, it has multiple meanings. It meant cord or rope, but it had a secondary meaning. It had the meaning hope. It lends itself to a great pun, doesn't it? It was a rope of hope. <laughs> I love that. Now, I, I must admit to you, down through the centuries, there has been much speculation about this rope and what it signified and what it meant. If it meant anything, I believe it looked back. It was reminiscent of Exodus chapter 12 when God delivered the nation of Israel out of the land. There were ten plagues. The final plague was the angel, the death angel coming and taking the firstborn unless the doorpost and the lentil Filled with splashed with blood of a sacrifice. And those that did that, their firstborn was saved. Those that didn't, firstborn died. And then Pharaoh said, Enough is enough. You guys get out of here. I, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us that it's reminiscent of anything. It may have just been a red rope hanging over the window so that the Israeli army could see it when they came and deliver her. Secondly, she had to assemble her family into her home before the battle began, verse 18. It's interesting that Rahab uh, is a person of faith. I don't know about her family. They're not that mentioned. They have faith in her, apparently. 
and she gathers them into her home because she cares for them. And then, according to verse 20, she had to keep the mission of the spies a secret, which makes all the sense in the world. And then in verses 22, the end of the chapter, the spies departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road and had not found them. Good deal. That's what was supposed to happen. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, surely, well, they knew this. Why they say this? Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hand, and moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted, melted away before us. They are demoralized. And you know the rest of the story. Joshua chapter 6. Well, by the way, get, get this picture in your mind. You've got Rahab and her family. They're in their home looking out over the walls, city walls, okay? And we don't know how long she waited. Some suggest up to about two, three weeks for the battle to begin. And then the battle begins. And what's the battle like? They're marching around the city. Six days, they march around the city. you got to be, you put yourself in Rahab's shoes. What kind of an army is this? What are, what are they doing? And then the seventh day, they march around six times. You know the story. They blow those ram's horns, they shout, and the walls fall down. All except for Rahab, which is a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> and you know the story she saves. She and her household. Well, there are two themes, I believe, that flow out of this account that are important for us to take with us out the door this morning. First is this, no one, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. Remember what we learned about Rahab? She was a woman, a, a lady of the Eden, a Canaanite, a, a hated people by the surrounding tribes. And over and over again, God condemns the Canaanites. And for 700 years, after that initial condemnation of the Canaanites, he has waited and waited and waited and that is about to come to fruition, that judgment on Canaan. And only Rahab, out of all of those folks, again, I don't know about her family, but Rahab believed the promise of God to the people of God and was saved by God. God chooses ordinary, unlikely people as objects of his grace. Think of her situation. Think of her profession. Think of her past. Don't count anybody out. Pray. Share your life in the love of Jesus and watch what God 
will do. And I have a little exercise for you. You don't have to stand up or do anything. It's just it's pretty simple. I want you to bring up a photograph in your mind. A photograph of someone who you think, no way. <laughs> no way. That person will never experience the grace of God. Got them? They're in your mind? I encourage you to begin to pray for that person specifically. That God, by his spirit, would move in their heart and life. And they would be the recipient of God's grace. I've been around here a long time. I know most of you in the room. I know most of you have come to faith in Jesus. But there may be some who haven't. <laughs> it would be easy for you to say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. Ah, God can't forgive me. In the vernacular, hogwash. Nobody. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. And God's promise is, I've sent my son to die on the cross, to shed his blood for your sins. If you believe in him, if you'll trust him, he'll forgive your sins. You'll become a child of God. And if you... You have never made that decision. You're here this morning. I'd encourage you to consider Jesus and his sacrifice. Talk to someone you know who is a believer, one of the elders, about your relationship with Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. What amazing grace life of a Canaanite woman. No one, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Is the second theme that emerges from this text is faith, <laughs> obviously. Rahab is held up as, an, as a model by the New Testament writers as a person of faith. She is a model for us this morning of 21st century faith, what it ought to look like. Faith that endures in a changing world and a shifting culture. Rahab, a woman alone in a hostile society, a hostile territory, waiting. I just wonder when she came to faith and what she thought of when that army showed up across the Jordan. I don't know the answer to any of those questions, but I do know this. When the spies showed up, her faith became a verb. And she began to act. She hid them. She protected them. She informed them about what was going on. She sent them on their way. Rahab stood alone in faith. How could she do that? How could she stand there alone and take that risk? I think we see three things in the text. First is her view of God. She lived in a polytheistic situation. They had a God for the wall. <laughs> but she came to believe that the God of Israel, Yahweh, he alone was God and nobody else. And that's who I'm sharing, placing my allegiance to. Pledging my allegiance to. 
four times she uses that personal name for God. Secondly, she believed that the God of Israel was a powerful God. He parted the Red Sea. He helped them defeat those two powerful kings of the Amorites. And thirdly, she understood that he was a present God. He is the God of heaven above and earth below. He's involved in the lives of people. That knowledge of God gave her confidence to trust him, knowing he was capable of handling her situation. Knowing God, knowing him will move you from fear to faith. Understanding that he is fully capable of handling your situation regardless of what it might be. Because he alone is God. He is powerful and he is present. Now just a little segue. I said he is capable of handling your problem, your issue, your circumstance. The problem with that is we like to think we know how we want this thing handled. That not be, might not be the way God will choose to handle it. But regardless, he is worthy of our trust, worthy of our confidence as we journey through this life with Jesus. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He holds things together by the word of his power. And he is at work in our lives as he worked in the life and circumstances of Rahab. I urge you to live in the light of that truth. Gracious Father, we are grateful for examples of faith. I pray, Father, that as we leave here and, and possibly consider this woman of faith, in her circumstance, surrounded by a hostile culture. She stood alone, taking a great risk, but one in which she knew you, knew that you were trustworthy, and she trusted you and you delivered her. Father, help each and every one of us to understand that truth for our lives. Because you are our God, you are worthy of our trust, worthy of our allegiance. Thank you, Father, for your word. And dismiss us now with your blessing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.